Amen. Hey, well, good morning and welcome to Tri-Cities Church. Um, welcome, welcome. Hey, I'm Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here. Hey, this is your first time with us. We welcome you here. Hey, as we were saying, we believe, we're a church that believes certain things, and that belief shapes our lives. And so as a church, really what we're doing is we're trying to figure out how together we can live into that reality of who God has called us uh, to be. Hey, in the seat in front of you, I say this every week, but in the seat in front, or most, almost every week, in the seat in front of you, there are these uh, visitor cards. We'd love to know that you are here. Um, if this is your first time uh, with us, we'd love to know that you're here and be praying for you, but also on the back of that card, you can always uh, fill it out with any kind of prayer request or anything that's going on in your life um, that you want us to know about, be praying about. And even as we wrap up this series, um, uh, as we wrap up this series, we've been in this series for the last, um, uh, this is the sixth week, this week it's the sixth week, we've been in a series where we've really been talking about um, who we are as a church, right? We talked about our values, our five values which are right up there on the wall. We talked about those, each one of those individually. And then last week we talked about uh, our belief in the Trinity, God in, in, in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, and if you missed that message, go back and listen to that. In fact, if you missed any of them in this series, you can go back uh, to our website, tricitieschurch.com, or you can go, uh, if you go to iTunes and you search Tricities Church, I think there's there's two different ones that have come up. There's a Tricities Baptist Church somewhere, maybe Tennessee. And then there's Tri-Cities Church that ought to come up uh, there, and uh, that, that one will be us. You'll see our logo uh, on, on there if you, if you look it up. And so you can go back and you can check out any of those messages. In fact, if, if any of you use iPads, iPhones, Macs, and you do podcasts or, you know, you have a little podcast app on there, you can actually subscribe, right, to our, our podcast there in iTunes, uh, and it will automatically download messages uh, uh, to your phone or iPad or whatever device that, that you're using. Uh, so you could you could do that, and so they're all are, you're there, and you can you know you can set that thing up where it deletes the old ones after a certain amount of time or whatever. Um, but it, it allows you to have uh, kind of the, the things we talk about on Sunday mornings at your fingertips, especially if you're talking to somebody and you're going, oh, "Is there something on Sunday?" You could like just pull out your phone and just you know go back and listen to it. Hey, but a, a part of this series, what we were doing is. Um, we're, we're, uh, we, we call it partners, not members at Tri-Cities Church. Basically, a similar thing, but we're saying that we believe that God wants us to be uh, partners with his church, be a part of what God is doing through the church. That God has magnificent work in this world that he's doing through the church. He wants us to partner with it means be here, be involved, um, be living generously and those different kinds of things. Um, and so we've done partnership classes in the past. We said, hey, this time around, this will serve as our partnership classes, six weeks on Sunday morning going through this this series. Uh, and so that's what we've done. So if, if you've been here all six weeks and heard all six messages and you say, hey, that's a church I want to be a part of, there should be the partnership commitment forms back there at that table right where you came in the door. Um, you can grab one of those if you want to be a part of Tri-Cities Church. Um, uh, you go ahead and, and fill that out. You can just sign your name at the bottom. And um, it, your name is not going on any kind of golden roll or plaque back here on a hallway, right? And um, there's not even a computer database. That, I don't know. I, there's a database, but I don't know if there's a computer database where we track, like, who our partners are. We do have a, we do have a, a spreadsheet. We have a, a spreadsheet where we track who our partners are. But we never go back and look at it and then like... Uh, should, should this person, uh, you know, get get uh, favor because, they're, you know, it's not that kind of deal, right? Uh, we know who our partners are because they're a part of us. They're here on Sunday morning and they're participating in what we're doing. So it's not this uh, level of uh, in and out and favoritism and not favoritism. It's just about saying, 
I'm, I'm committed. We know, we know who we can call on, you know, by, by who signs those, those forms. And so if we can call on you and count on you when, when, uh, when we have something to do, go ahead and, uh, and, and make that decision to partner with Tri-Cities Church. All right, well, let's, let's pray and then we'll get into our message this morning. God, we give you thanks that this morning we get to gather in this place and sing songs about our belief and faith in you. God, we give you, we give you thanks that, um, that what we're doing on Sunday morning isn't just, um, it's not just practice, right? It's not just uh, a good idea. It's not just uh, uh, empty words coming out of our mouth, but it's a real expression of the faith that is within us. And God, I think about that scripture where I think it was, um, I don't, I'm not sure who it was, I think it was Thomas that says, I believe, now help my unbelief. And, and God, I, I think about how, um, yeah, we've come to a point of belief in our faith, but you're continuously maturing us and growing us up. And so, God, I pray that as a church you will do that, both through this series and through our study of the Scriptures, God, that you will grow us up, that you will help our unbelief, that you will help us to believe in you more and more every day. So, God, as we open the Scriptures this morning and study one of the things that we believe as a church, God, I just pray that you will guide us into this message as we talk about your word, the Scriptures that we can get a clearer understanding of who you've called us to be. In your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, so um, um, the, the Gutenberg Press, I think that's the first thing on your handout. We're talking about Gutenberg Press. The Gutenberg Press uh, revolutionized our world. In fact, it probably revolutionized our world more than anything else. In the 15th century, um, in the 15th century, for the first time, books were able to be reproduced mechanically, right? And this is a huge thing. At least this is at least the story. And I and I feel like um, well, well y'all know this, right? All all history is told with a bit of a slant to it, right? All history has a little bit of a bias to it. If anybody's retelling story or retelling history, some of that history is going to come out incorrectly. So this is what I learned in school, so I'm telling it to you, right? That, that in the 15th century, Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press and that that revolutionized and changed our world. Now, there's some politicians that would say, um, there's some people, I won't even, I'm not even getting into the politics, right? There's some people that would say, uh, and they would be true here, right, that China is like taking jobs, right? Um, the Chinese invented the printing press long before Gutenberg invented the printing press. So that's nothing new, right? Uh, you learned, let's see it in the history books. You might have learned in your history class that Gutenberg was the, the dude that did it, changed the world. Uh, I think over a hundred years, right? The Chinese had developed that technology and they were already printing stuff mechanically. But let's roll with Gutenberg since that's the <laughs> slant the history takes. Now, now prior to this invention of the printing press, right, the, the way books were, were uh, uh, produced was somebody would start at page one <laughs> and they would, you know, all, and they would sit there and they would flip to the next page and you know, and a book, one single book could take up to a year to write. And in fact, the book would cost about a year's salary. So not many people had books prior to the Gutenberg Press, right? Uh, prior to mass production of books, not many people had them. Only if you were wealthy, only if you thought very highly of that book. You're like, I can't live without it. Because it would cost you so much money because you were basically paying a person's 
salary for an entire year to write that book. And so here's the world before the Gutenberg press, right? The world was, um, was fairly uneducated and illiterate. Only if you were rich or you went to an academy or a university did you have access to books and libraries. Now I go back in my office back here and I see all the books. I think I have three or four, three bookshelves, um, that, that are almost full of books. Um, and so I, and, I, and I've like bought books and given away books. And so it's difficult to imagine, um, living in a world where uh, we didn't have access to that kind of information. But in the 15th century, for the first time, um, the Bible became personal and portable, right? For the first time, people owned their own Bible. And I don't know how many Bibles I own. In fact, most homes today have at least one Bible in them. And so for the 15th century, though, for the first time, Bibles became personal and portable. That means people had their Bible, right? They had a, a personal Bible that they could carry with them, that they could read on their own, and they could study it and get to know God's Word. This was an important thing. In fact, Gutenberg was the first one uh, to mass produce Bibles. It was the Gutenberg Bible. Um, And even though a lot of people had Bibles and bought Bibles, a lot of people didn't read. So back then, this is my kind of Bible, right? Uh, They had a lot of pictures in it. Um, uh, (laughs) for, For a long time, I refused to read any book that didn't have pictures in it. Uh, and if the Bible had some illustrations in it, uh, it would be a lot more convenient for me to just go through and look at the pretty pictures and gain knowledge of the stories from what I see. But um, I digress. Um, and so for the first time, the Bible became about personal and portable. Now, at that time, uh, most Bibles were translated uh, in Latin. And so that was kind of the language of the church, if you will. Uh, and so a lot of people already were illiterate and um, and they didn't know Latin to add to that. Right. And so um, and so um, so they had to go to church and rely on a priest to translate uh, and tell you what the Bible was saying. Now, I, I got to say, I mean, I, I love the fact that we're a church and we can throw uh, scriptures that we read up on the projectors and that people can walk in the door with their own Bible um, because there's something that happened during that time. We're not getting too much into that, but there was something that happened in that time that uh, having a priest, uh, relying upon a priest to interpret the Bible, translate the Bible, interpret it, gave one man too much power and it did lead to some corruption in the church. If you listen to church history, if you had to have, if you had to rely on me to tell you what to say, right? That would be a lot of power or tell you what the Bible says or what God says. That would be a lot of power in my hands, right? And I don't, I don't desire that kind of power. I don't want that kind of power. My goal, our goal at Tri-Cities Church is to lead you into the scriptures so that you can read your personal and portable Bible, right? I'm hoping you're taking this to work and you got one in the dashboard on your car where it's fading from the sun and all that um, that you see people doing. Um, and uh, hopefully you're taking your personal portable Bible and you are studying the scriptures for yourself. Our goal is to guide you into that. Um, but in, the, in, in this age, in the 15th century or prior to the 15th century, people didn't have Bibles. So the priest had to, to tell you what the Bible said. Now, after the invention of the Gutenberg Press, um, numerous uh, English translations of the Bible were written. Uh, they started to multiply quite rapidly. Um, and the one we use here is the NIV version, New International uh, Version of the Bible. Um, but there's tons of, in fact, if you go to like BibleGateway.com, um, you can look at all the different translations that exist of the Bible. Now, some of those are, because there's no like... Um, 
what is it, the uh, FDA, the federal drug, uh, federal whatever? There's no, like, FDA for the Bible, right? We need something like that that regulates translating the Bible to make sure. Because, I mean, I could write my own translation, and I could publish it, right? Anybody could publish something these days. Um, and so on your, on your handout, there's a, um, there's a couple of, of good Bible uh, translations. The NIV is the one that I use. I've been using it for years. I love it. They updated it in 2011. So if you have one that was prior to 2011, the one I'm reading might vary a little bit different uh, from yours. Uh, and and the, here's the deal, and, and not to talk too much about this, but um, with, with Bible translations is there's not a one-for-one word-to-word equivalency. So the original Bible um, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written mostly in Greek. And so when we're translating it into English, um, a, a classic example is the word love. I think there's like five Greek words for the word love. In English, we, we, got, we have one word really for, for love. Uh, and so there's not a word for word equivalence. But with them, if they heard phileo, they knew brotherly love or eros, right? Um, you, you know, that meant kind of a, a more erotic kind of love. But, you know, in our English, if we translate that, we're like love, love, right? Um, and those are two totally different things. <laughs> there's no need to even really go into that. But, and so there's a challenge with, um, there's a challenge in translating the Bible. So there are some translations that are better than others. The ones that are on the handout, the NIV, uh, ESV, I think that's just say ESV, I think it says ESB on there. Uh, ESV, the NLT, um, um, New English, that's English Standard Version is the ESV. Um, the the uh, NRSV, that's the New Revised Standard Version, the New King James Version. All those are good, good, uh, good versions of the Bible, good translations of the Bible. Now, the King James Version, like that, I grew up on the King James Version. And if anybody like grew up in the church reading the Bible, you probably read the King James Bible. Um, th- there's a reason. Let's just put that there. There's a reason why there's a New King James Version of the Bible. Um, <clears throat> there's a um, there's a reason why a King has his name on on a Bible. That's a little. Uh, so I, I, I'm not saying that you don't trust the King James Bible, but I'm saying there are better versions of the Bible for us to study from, right, and get to know God's Word. The NASB, New American Standard um, um, uh, Version or Bible, uh, it, it is a, a closest to a word-for-word word from the Greek, and it's an excellent Bible. Whatever you want to know what the Bible says more clearly, um, uh, the NASB uh, you can go to BibleGateway.com. You can just click on it and you can look up a verse in that. So there's all these English trans- translations that came post-Gutenberg. Now, um, uh, also in a post-Gutenberg world, we see that the Gutenberg press was the main technology or the core technology that led to the Enlightenment, right? And the Enlightenment was this 18th century. So it was years after the uh, after the Gutenberg press. But the Enlightenment was this 18th century intellectual movement that elevated uh, science and reason over tradition and religion, right? It elevated science and reason over tradition and Religion, and so the the um the, the the main thing of the day became the scientific what what was that thing the um scientific method that's what I'm thinking about uh, where you where you have this question right you start with the question you do a little bit of research you come up with your hypothesis right um is this reminding you of science class you come up with your hypothesis you do your experiment you get your results and you track them what do you do you repeat right you experiment you come up with your you do your research you experiment you repeat experiment it's like this back and forth, and then you draw a conclusion. Now, in, during the period of the Enlightenment, science was king, right? And it was all about experiments. 
And so there was this level of suspicion and authority because all of a sudden you have this Gutenberg press and whoever they want, whoever wants to is publishing a, a book. It's almost like today in the world of the internet where we have Wikipedia and WebMD and all these different sources. Like, I, I don't go to the doctor to get my own diagnosis, right? I, <laughs> I have the WebMD app. Like, I go on there, and I'm like, da, 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 pain in my arm, da, 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 rule out these symptoms, and boom, it's there. Uh, it's even tempting sometimes, uh, instead of, like, wading through books whenever I'm writing my sermons to go to Wikipedia, because it's decent Bible information, right? Everything's at our fingertips. You could just Google it, and it's there. Well, in, in the 15th century, after the Gutenberg Press, when books became more accessible and libraries were more common, it became a temptation for everyone to become an expert in whatever field they wanted to. And so they began to question authority, because after all, I read this in a book, and it's different than what my neighbor says. It's different than what my priest has taught me. It's different than what my doctor told me. And so everyone becomes an authority, right? at least in their own minds, because of what they're, they're reading. And there's this level of suspicion of everything that begins to merge out of the, uh, this time called the Enlightenment. And they were suspicious of everything, even the Bible. And they began to ask these questions about the Scriptures. The Bible says Jesus walked on water. I've never seen it done. It's not an experiment that can duplicate it. Is that true? The Bible says Jesus took uh, five loaves of bread and two fish and he multiplied it. Right? <clears throat> you can do the experiment and pray over that bread all day long. <laughs> but it's highly likely, I won't say it's impossible, but it's highly likely that it's not going to multiply and feed 5,000. Because Jesus was doing that for a specific purpose. He was trying to teach us that he is the bread of life. And so what happened during this period known as the Enlightenment is the suspicion began to be cast on the Bible. People began asking questions about or questioning the authority of the Bible, the significance of the scriptures, the accuracy of it, its place in our life. People began to question those things. And and, uh, what, what began to happen in the world, at least theologically and within the church, is you had these camps that were forming that were polar opposites. You have this one camp that's digging in, right? The scriptures are infallible. They're inerrant. They don't have error they they gotta be right it's gotta be truthful because my faith after all is resting um my faith after all is resting not on on god and and uh his his uh qualities and his presence in this world but my faith is resting on the infallibility and the inerrancy of the scripture so you have this one camp that's going there and you have another camp that's going hey this <laughs> i I just can't believe these stories, right? All these stories are myths. There's no way we can't reproduce them. They they can't be true. And you see that these uh, camps are becoming uh, uh, opposed to one another. They're headed in two different directions. And so all this division in this post-enlightenment world is beginning to happen. And a lot of it's happening around the scriptures. Now, now, just kind of put a pin there for just a moment. And let me say, because uh, one of the things we, we don't talk a lot about is the restoration movement and uh, Tri-Cities Church and our denomination as part of the independent Christian church. Well, I shouldn't say denomination. We're, um, we're the non-denominational denomination, right? Um, so Tri-Cities Church <laughs> is, is, is not a denominational church, right? 
Um, but we are part of a rich history and a movement that kind of came out of this enlightenment when the churches were beginning to divide. And, and for any different dif- disagreement theologically, someone would say, well, uh, I disagree with you, so I'm going to go start... Um, let's just use Baptist, for instance, because that's just common, right? I'm going to go start the Southern Baptist Church because I disagree with you American Baptists, and then uh, I disagree with you American Baptists, so then I'm going to go start the National Baptist Church. And then, I mean, there's like a hundred-something different brands of Baptists in the world now um, because the churches began dividing over different disagreements because they were reading the Bible a lot more carefully and with suspicion, and they're forming into different camps, and all that came on the Enlightenment. And so, like, try these church, um, we're an independent Christian church. Uh, part of a movement, uh, Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, Barton Stone came out of the Second Great Awakening, uh, this, this movement towards um, to just calling ourselves Christians and not identifying with any one particular denomination because that leads to division. And so we said, we want to we uh, kind of boil the scriptures down to the essentials what thus saith the Lord, what the Lord says. And we want to believe that and we want to put our faith and trust in, in that and not divide over, over these matters of disagreement that come down to tradition that we saw coming out of the Enlightenment. And so what we see at Tri-Cities Church and at other Christian churches is this desire to be um, this, um, we use the word non-denominational, but you could even say interdenominational, a church where different people from different backgrounds, different histories, different stories, different church upbringings are welcome and brought into the family of God and where we see some unity happening where previously there was division. And so here's what we believe at, at Tri-Cities Church about, about the scripture. Kind of coming out of that and in this effort to unify. We believe that the scripture is God's tool, right? It belongs to God. It's God's tool for shaping God's people for God's mission. The scripture is God's tool. It belongs to God. And what we see that God wants to do with the scriptures is he wants to shape his people, the church, right? So the the, the scriptures have relevance here, Right, have relevance in 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 this community, in in the church community, Um, and God's using that to shape us for His mission. Now, the question always comes up: is uh, how is God using the Scriptures to shape us? Now, part of the argument that came out of the Enlightenment is this idea that the Scriptures had this um, this authority. But what we see in the Scriptures themselves, and, and and what's obvious in just the, the physical presence of the Bible, is that the Scriptures do not possess any authority in and of themselves, right? The Scriptures do not possess any authority in and of themselves. Is that up there? I think that's the next. Did y'all get that? Oh, y'all got that? All right, so uh, the Scriptures does not possess any authority uh, in and of themselves. In other words, out of the Enlightenment, we, we almost got this idea, and if you look at the language um, um, coming out of that with churches that were kind of digging in into the inerrancy and infallibility of, uh, infallibility of the Scriptures, people began talking about this biblical authority uh, and the scriptural authority. And it almost sounds as though, it almost sounds as though the Bible, in a sense, comes alive such that, um, um, such that if I were to get in the car headed somewhere to do something that was not God's will, 
like a hand would come out of the Bible and slap me and say, you fool, like that the Bible has some kind of authority to correct us in and of itself, right? Um, so out of that, it, and I wouldn't be surprised, and that would be, wouldn't it be a bad idea, right? This, um, maybe this app, right? This Bible app that does have some kind of authority, like when you're going places that you, um, shouldn't be going, let's just say, um, a club where, um, you know, um, stuff happens, right? And like, as you get out the car, like this app can like, the Bible app can like track your location and it just starts going, like sinner, sinner, right? Um, we speak about the, um, we speak about the Bible as though it has some kind of authority, like that kind of technology has been developed where in and of itself, the Bible has power to correct us. But the Bible is, it's a story, right? It's literature. It's a real good story. It's a book. It's God's story. But in and of itself, the Bible has no real authority. In fact, what the scriptures teach us is that all authority belongs to God, not the scriptures, right? Um, but all authority, the scriptures are always pointing us to God, the God who has all authority. We look at the Bible in Genesis 1, it opens with a clear image of God's authority. Look at Genesis chapter 1. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good. And he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Um, I think I might be. Uh, yeah, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So right there, if that's not authority, right? The earth was empty. It was formless. It, it didn't have anything in it. God created uh, the, the Latin word that came before um, the um, oh, uh, Gutenberg Press. Ex nihilo, right? Out of nothing. That's kind of the theological phrase there. Um, <clears throat> you can write that down. Sound astute. Uh, ex nihilo. God created ex nihilo. Out of nothing, right? He spoke and things came out of nothing. That is authority. So what we see the Bible opening up with this, uh, it's not the opening of a book that has authority in our lives, but it's a opening of a book that's teaching us about a God who has authority in our lives because he has authority over all of creation. So from the very beginning, the Bible's teaching us that all authority belongs to the triune God. God the Father has authority to create by the sound of his voice. We look further in scriptures uh, with Jesus in the resurrection, the death and the resurrection, right after that in Matthew chapter 28. Listen to what Jesus uh, said. He says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is after Jesus defeated death, the grave. He was buried. Everybody knew it. He was in there for three days. He comes back up and he's like, you know, surprise, I'm back. And people, are, their mouths are dropping open. He's saying, hey, guess what? All authority has been given to me. I'm able to do this. There's nothing that's impossible for God. And so we see in the triune God that there's all authorities. And he says, go there, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. And so that, that's very clear. Jesus is saying, hey, in the Bible, right, it opens with this story of a God who has authority. God in the flesh, Jesus, we talked about the Trinity last week, has that same authority. He doesn't have lesser authority. Hey, he said, all authority has been given to me. Now go and live out this mission. And what does he do? He, he leaves us with the Holy Spirit to empower us, to have authority in our lives, to lead us into God's mission. If you look in Acts chapter um, chapter 1, 
In those first, uh, first few verses, verse 7, it says, Then he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates, because already people are guessing. Like They're like, Jesus is leaving. When is he going to come back? Uh, so people are already starting to guess that kind of thing. Uh, he says, It's not for you to know the times or the date that the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and all the ends of the earth. And so we see right there that he's saying, hey, you're not going to know the days you're, you're kind of left here, but you're not left here alone because I'm leaving my spirit with you. And when my spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power. In Acts chapter 2, we see um, the Spirit's authority in this world over the lives of believers beginning to play out in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what appeared to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so we see the Spirit enabling people to do miraculous things. And here we see a sign of what God is doing that he mentioned in Matthew chapter 28 when he says, All authority has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. On the day of Pentecost, when all these disciples were together, the Holy Spirit descends upon them and they begin speaking in other recognizable languages. Languages. And as they begin speaking in these languages, it's a sign that God intended the gospel to go from that place to the ends of the earth. And so the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of the Spirit is seen in and through Tri-Cities Church. And the fact that the gospel is being proclaimed from this very corner and all this distance from, uh, from Jerusalem, right? We're a long way. And what's happening? The gospel is being spread. And so we see that God has this authority. We see it in the very beginning. We see it in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see it in the existence and the mission of the church. The fact that we're living that out today. It's not that the scriptures have authority, but it's that God has all authority. But that God who has all authority and power has chosen to exercise his authority through the scriptures. God has chosen to exercise his authority through the scriptures. So this is what this means. This is what it looks like in our lives. It means when we come to the Bible, when we come to the Holy Scriptures to study them, we got to come with a posture of openness. Because here's my life, and especially still my life, because we're, we're always maturing and being sanctified in the faith. But I come to the scripture sometimes with a list, a mental list. I'm not that calculating. Um, uh, But a mental list sometimes of what I will do and will not do. And so the scriptures may be teaching me that this is the way I ought to live out my life. But that's on my I will not do list, right? I am not willing to do. I am not bold enough to do. I just don't want to do. It's on my I will not do list, right? Right. And that happens all so often, and we remove God's authority over our life when we do that because God has chosen to exercise his authority through the scriptures. And so it's so important that now we have these Bibles, right? They're personal and they're portable. We can take them with us wherever we go. It's in our language. We can read it. We have no excuse not to read it. I imagine when, um, when, um, when people first got Bibles in the, uh, you know, 15th century, uh, their personal Bibles, they were like, I- I gotta read this. I gotta read this. I gotta read this. And now we're like, do I have to? 
do I have to read this? Right? Things have changed, but God wants to exercise his authority through the scriptures. He wants us reading them, studying them, while being open to what he's calling us to do. Because here's the deal. As we read the scriptures, as we study them with a posture of openness, God will mature us. If we read them with an attitude that's already saying yes to God before I even read, I, I think that's a key in Bible study. Right? You can do this even out loud. When you sit down to read the scriptures, you can say, God, whatever it is you want me to do in this day, I'm saying yes right now. God, wherever it, what, you know, because we read with these certain qualifications. I'm not, I'm just not, there's a, there's a do not do list. All right, all of us have one. I'm not ashamed of mine because we all got one, right? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. When we open the scriptures and we read them, there's a God who uses them to guide our lives. And so we read with this ideal of God, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do it. And then here's the thing we see that happens and how God exercises his authority is God uses the scriptures, a story, to draw us into his story. God is drawing us into his own story. Now, the temptation in our world that's kind of coming out of this enlightenment and this division and this split and separation that began to happen in the church is this tendency to reduce the Bible to legalistic bullet points. God says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. God says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That doesn't even capture half of what the Bible is about. The Bible is a story. It's a beautiful story. And it's challenging us to come to read that story, to get to know that story, to be infatuated by that story, allow that story to sit on our lives because it's calling us to be a part of it. Right? We are living out the Holy Scriptures. In fact, um, uh, N.T. Wright, a theologian, the way he talks about it is that it's like God is writing this five-act play, right? The first act is, is creation, and then the second act is the fall, and then we see Israel as God begins to form a people for himself, and then we see Jesus. Jesus comes and he does miraculous things, and then the fifth act is the church. And here's what he says, and this is so crucial and helped me to understand what God is calling us to do, is we are living out the fifth act of God's five-act play. We are the church, and we're gaining our cues from act one, two, three, and four. You see, God has shown us what it looks like to chase after him. God has shown us what it looks like to be his people in this story that we call the Bible. And as we're gaining our cues from the four acts that come before us. And from the beginning days of the fifth act, the early church, we began to understand what it looks like to live out God's story. And that's the role of the scriptures. The scriptures, God's tool for shaping God's people for God's mission. Not God's tool for keeping his people in line so we can become prideful of the fact that we're humble <laughs> or prideful of the fact that I, I don't drink alcohol. Uh, that happened, right? Uh, or prideful of the fact I'm still married to my first 
wife, right? Um, that we can become prideful of these different things and feel like somehow God is pleased with us because we've reduced the scriptures to these legalistic bullet points instead of finding ourselves drawn into God's story where we're making a difference in the community around us. God is not just concerned with our morals, right? He is concerned with our morals. I'm not saying like, uh, just go bump all that stuff that Bible tells us that we're supposed to live. God is concerned with our morals, but he's concerned with more than that. He's writing a beautiful, magnificent story of a people who are living out their faith. And I just, because I, every now and then I read the Bible and I go, um, Paul had no idea that we would be reading this stuff today, right? He was just living out his faith, a part of God's story, right? Moses had no idea that we'd be reading the Bible today, right? He was just saying yes to God, right? He was saying, I'll go where you go. Abraham had no idea. Look at the people in the Bible. They didn't know that they were writing a Bible, right? Nobody nobody knew that. Nobody was like, I'm working on this 1,500-year uh, project, right? It just wasn't happening, right? They would have given up and quit if it was a project that was going to last 1,500 years. They didn't know that they were writing the Bible. They were living out their faith and writing about it to help other people join the same story story that God uh, had called them to join. And as they joined that story, it became holy scripture that sets the tone for how we are to live out God's story today. So what are some next steps uh, for us, uh, for us as a church with scripture being a tool that God uses to, uh, to, to shape our lives for his mission? I think the first next step we can see is learn to study the Bible responsibly. Learn to study the Bible responsibly. Now, there's, there's, um, <clears throat> there is a danger that comes with us having personal and portable Bibles. I, I heard someone say once, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Um, you will, you will, um, you can, you can flip through the channels on Sunday morning or whenever televangelists are on all the time and you can hear different theologies backed up by scripture all over the place. And the question of which one's right? Like, what does God want me to believe? Right? That's the danger of the Bible. We are notorious. The church is notorious for using the Bible irresponsibly. And we did a series once, like a little Sunday morning Bible study about reading the scriptures. Hey, there, there's some, um, and there's some good resources that'll help you, help you to do this. And I think some of those are on your sheet. Like those study Bibles that are listed there, those are all, those three, they're all three good. That Gordon Fee book, uh, uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth is a magnificent book. You owe it to yourself, right? To have that book on your bookshelf and to read it, to learn to read the Bible in context. Um, because here's the deal. This is what we do. We open the Bible. I used to do this sometimes because I felt like God led my life in this way. I would just flip the Bible open and I would just read one verse and I would say, uh, and I would like expect God to speak some miraculous way to me. Um, and like, so, uh, so notoriously we've, we've been people that have done that. Like we've plucked one verse out of the Bible and translated that as God's word for me when, um, particularly with prophecy, we've done that. This prophecy that's been fulfilled a thousand years ago and we're going, this is word of God to me. Like that's not word for you. That was word for the person it was written to a thousand years ago, right? Um, or Romans chapter eight, there's a classic one. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Classic misuse of that scripture, right? I get let, let off my job. I know that all things work together for the good. He's got a better one for me down the road. I'm just waiting on my blessing. What if he doesn't have a better one down for you, for you down the road? What if, what if he doesn't? Because that's happened, right? That's happened. 
yeah, not, not, not everything that's bad turns out better, right? Some things that go from bad to worse. Um, and God is still there and he's still involved in it. See, that scripture is teaching us something very different. It's not to be plucked out and just applied to our life when we're going through difficulty. It's saying that in the end, right, our destination in the Lord is secure. There is better. That better may not be this year. It better it may not be next year. It may not be any time in the near future, even in this life. But what God has for you is better. Now, it's not as encouraging when we read it that way. But we got to be sure to use the Bible responsibly, to study the Bible responsibly. We owe it to ourselves to get to know how to study the Bible in context and not just pluck verses out and make them say what we want them to say. Because it's only then that we begin to see clearly what God is calling us to do and how he's calling us to live our lives. Second thing I want you to see is that we got to use the Bible responsibly. Very similar to the first one. Study the Bible responsibly. Use the Bible responsibly. The church has a history of using the scriptures in a way that's um, forceful to those who do not yet believe. But what we see in the scriptures is that it's God's story intended to draw us into his story so that we can live like we are a part of the story of God. And what the church has failed to get historically is why can't um, my friend Sally, I don't think there's any Sallys in here, my, why can't my friend Sally <clears throat> obey the scriptures? Well, if she hasn't been drawn into the story of God, if she hasn't professed her faith, faith and re- received the Holy Spirit to empower her to live out God's story, we can't and we shouldn't expect her to live out her faith. But what the church has done is we've used the Bible as a tool for us to beat people over the heads into living out and obeying the Scriptures when the Scripture was intended to have authority in the lives of those who, of people who have already given authority to God, that he could exercise his authority through the Scriptures. And what we want God to do uh, it's kind of like a um, like a kid that runs to their parent and says, "He's bothering me. Like, make him do right. Make him obey." That's what we want to use. We want to. We're like going to guy and like, make Sally obey. Like, make her le- make her be nice to me, right? When God's saying, "No, you are part of my story," right? And that's why it says, "Love your enemies," right? Um, because Sally may not believe. And she can continue in her ways that are harmful and hurtful to you. But God is saying, you're part of my story. You're being shaped by the scripture. You've given me authority. Now, you go and do what she should have been doing in the first place. Love your enemies. Right? Do, do Pray for them. Right? Be kind to them. It, it, it's not an easy story to be a part of. Um, yeah. But remember, God is working all things out for the good, ultimately. So the second thing we got to do, and we got to learn how to do this, is to use the Bible responsibly. In fact, we see in that Acts chapter 1, verse 7 scripture that um, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses. The Bible is, is not our tool to use to witness to the power of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. God changes us and we become witnesses. 
And so instead of running out into the world and saying, this is what God says, this is what the scriptures say, we worry first about being witnesses, being a people who are shaped by the scriptures for God's mission. And that is our first and primary witness as a church. We are people who live according to the scriptures. The third thing I want you to see as the next step for us is um, to name your idols. Name your idols. And this is what I was alluding to earlier. Because they will always hinder you from following Jesus and giving him authority over your lives. We all have idols in our lives. There are these things that are, to God, do not touch this. (laughs) For some of us, at some point, an idol is our finances, our bank account, our money, to put it the way that it is. And, And you could feel God calling you to give to help or give to serve a need. But because we're holding on to that idol so tightly, before God even says do, we've already said no. For some of us, our idol is our relationship. And God wants us to live faithfully in that relationship, but it's broken. And so before God says do, we're already saying to God, no. What's our idol? What has to be the way we've want it to be what can't be changed in our lives what is roped off and hands off to god in your life the scripture is telling you that's your idol whenever we're stubbornly holding on to the things of our lives when we're stubbornly holding on to our way so much so that when god says hey here's here's a better way here's my way, we're not able to say yes because we're holding on to our idols. You see, if the scripture is ever going to be God's tool for shaping God's people for God's mission in this world, we have to live as an open-handed people, a people who have already learned the practice of letting go of the things of this world, letting go of these uh, uh, sometimes hopes and dreams of this fantasy existence, or letting go of these hopes and dreams of wealth beyond our imagination, or letting go of these hopes and dreams of this job that just makes me happy, or a relationship that just makes me happy, or a car that just makes me happy, or a house that just makes me happy. Because our happiness and hope isn't to be found in those things. And so as we let go of them, we're able to be led by the Lord into the situation he's called us into so that his story may come alive in us in that situation. And that we become witnesses. Because people see our lives and they say, if it wasn't for the power of the Holy Spirit, they would not have let go. They would not have held on. They would not have said yes to the Lord. If it wasn't for the power of the Holy Spirit. And then people come to believe. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks this morning that we are a people shaped by the scriptures, uh, that you've given them to us, not so that they uh, can reach out and grab us, slap us, but so that you have a way of reaching out and grabbing us and giving us holy slaps. 
God, I just pray that we won't take those with anger and disgust, but we'll take them as discipline. For the scriptures teach us what loving father does not discipline his son or his daughter. And God, I pray that in this life that you will help us to find joy and holy discipline. That as you use the the scriptures, God, you will shape us. That we can become the people that you've called us to be through difficulty, through trial, through hardship, through I don't want to, through kicking and screaming. God, I pray that we will become the people that you've called us to be and that we'll look back and we'll say, I didn't realize how beautiful this story that God is writing with the brokenness and the pain of my life. I didn't realize how beautiful that story was going to turn out. God, too often in the midst of that story that you've drawn us in, into the midst of the story that you're writing with our lives, God, in the midst of that, we look at ourselves and saying, I'm not strong enough or, or I don't want to be here. I don't want to be a part of this story anymore. And, and, and we, um, we're tempted to give up and not to let you continue this wonderful, beautiful story through us. And we stand in the way of your work in this world. God, I pray that you will empower us with your Holy Spirit. That you will unite us as a community so that we can encourage one another. So that we will have the ability to persevere. To stick it out. To say yes to you the whole way through. So that the lessons of the Lord will be written on our lives. And that people don't have to go to the scriptures to come to know the power and the authority of the Lord because it's written on our lives. And that the people who are coming behind us, the generations, as the Bible says that in the generation that the scriptures were written, they looked back to the cloud of witnesses, the people who had come before them and the way the scriptures were written on their lives. God, I just pray that people will look at us in the generations to come as your church that they'll be encouraged and that they'll come to know the power and the authority of the Lord as He uses the Scriptures to draw us into His story. It's in Your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.